The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Amen. Today's reading from Acts chapter 2 offers to us a portrait of the early Jesus community as it encountered the presence of God in a powerful way. As such, it is the story we typically associate with Pentecost Sunday. The color red and orange and yellow in the sanctuary is supposed to symbolize the fire of the Spirit, igniting the mission of the first followers of Jesus, the oven heat that bakes the cake. We're told to imagine this group of just over a hundred Jewish folks meeting up in the temple courts for prayer on a prominent Jewish holiday. They're eagerly awaiting a further movement from God, the gift of God Jesus had promised them, and suddenly God shows up in fire and thunderous noise, and we're told that the disciples of Jesus begin announcing the works of God in every language under heaven, so much so that over 3,000 people end up joining the Jesus movement, that first Pentecost. That is often the story we focus on every Pentecost Sunday, to good measure. But today's gospel text, taken from John chapter 20, takes us back in time, 50 days, to the evening of Easter Sunday. John 20 finds the disciples not worshiping God with joy in the temple, not waiting eagerly for the gift of the Spirit to arrive, but rather huddled in fear, locked in a room together because they were convinced that since the authorities had come for Jesus, they were going to come for them too. At this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has been raised, but none of these disciples have seen him yet. All they know at this point is that his body is not where it's supposed to be. So they retreat in fear. They locked the doors in fear. There was no plan B, no forward thinking, no sense of now what will we do. There was only the present, only the crippling sense of despair and panic and anxiety. This is the scene where John gives us his glimpse of Pentecost. It's hardly what Luke gives us in Acts chapter 2. Here in John's gospel, Jesus breathes upon his terrified disciples and they receive God's spirit. If you're wondering why we have two very different and very conflicting stories of when the Spirit of God was poured out on the first followers of Jesus, I'll just say this, that in the years following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, various communities around the Mediterranean sprung up who remembered a certain set of stories about Jesus, while other communities in other places remembered a different set of stories about Jesus. We collected those stories into four gospel accounts, which are in our Bibles. They are the same in some places and different in others. 
John's gospel, the fourth gospel, came on the scene quite late, nearly 70 years after Jesus had ascended, and over 30 years after the earliest gospel. The gospel of John is strange. It's stranger than the other three accounts. It has a different timeline and events, a different cast of characters, a very different temperament and linguistic style. But its purpose in writing it was not to tell us what happened when, but rather why it happened at all. John's gospel is a theological gospel, a gospel that explores the mysteries of incarnation and Christology and the Eucharist and baptism and more. When we read John, we're less interested in the history of it all as we are in the theology of it all. There's, there's like 200 more paragraphs I should probably say to you on this, but I've got, got to leave it there for this morning. Suffice it to say, John's version of Pentecost comes here in this upper room. What he understands Pentecost to mean arrives here in this joyless room where terror and fear for what awaits the disciples out in the world has paralyzed everybody. I think that John's version of Pentecost is an important version for us to talk about here in 2023, a year in which we here in Flint, Michigan, have gathered in our own versions of locked upper rooms as we contemplate what's going to happen next in the world out there. Maybe you're following the negotiations and deliberations on Capitol Hill about the debt ceiling and you know that your retirement account cannot handle another recession. Maybe you're dreading the next election cycle where we watch fully grown people lie and mislead and debase themselves again and again just to win. Maybe you're living in a local community that is splitting itself apart at the seams over issues in your local school district and you're doing your best to stay afloat but the anger and bitterness and rage from people who claim to bear the name of Christ is more than you can bear. Maybe your marriage just ended. Maybe you're facing terminal illness. Maybe you're here and you've survived another round of chemo. Maybe you're facing job insecurity or addictions or whatever demons have moved in to your life this week. I don't know what brought you to this locked upper room of a sanctuary, but maybe you're ready to just lock the doors and keep the world outside. Like the disciples in John's gospel, maybe you're afraid for what is yet to come. And as long as you're here doing the church things, things will be okay. I think we're overdue for John to give us his version of Pentecost. It is not a story of patient waiting and fervent prayer and sudden miraculous signs and dramatic conversions. No, this story begins with fear. But it ends with a call to service in Christ's name. So let's enter into this scene from John's Gospel with our imaginations intact, and maybe we'll find on the other side a moment of revelation as we consider what Christ might be saying to us today. We enter into this joyless scene where the risen Christ suddenly appears, not dead, but alive. The people who had locked themselves in this room did not expect this to happen. They were not waiting for Jesus to appear in the room. They were waiting for soldiers at the door. They were waiting for a summons to appear before Pilate. They were waiting for execution orders to be delivered at dawn. Instead, it's none of those things. 
but it's Jesus, not dead, but alive. And the first thing he says to his disciples is not greetings, is not hi, how are you, or so, the cross was fun. But instead, Jesus says, peace to you. Peace, he says, not dread. Peace, he says, not fear. Peace, he says, not cynicism, not heartache, not sorrow, but peace. And with the word peace hanging in the air, the risen Christ shows his disciples his hands and his side. He shows them the vicious wounds which are somehow still visible in his resurrected body, still present, still marking him as somebody who was crucified, still naming him as somebody who died shamefully. Jesus shows them his hands and side, the places where humanity attempted to eliminate God's plan for salvation, the places where Adam and Eve's heirs continued the sin of Eden in rebellion against God's will. Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side, his wounded body, his injured flesh, and the text says the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Whatever else this strange action of Jesus showing up and revealing his scars on his body is supposed to mean, at the very least, it's to let the disciples know that this really is Jesus, like for real. Not a ghost. Not like when they were on the stormy seas and Jesus walks out to the ship and they thought it was a ghost. Not a ghost. Whatever is standing before them in that locked upper room, it's not an apparition, it's not a spirit, it's not a vision, but it's a body. A body with holes in its wrists where nails pinned it to the wood on Friday and a slash in his side where a spear stabbed to see if he was still alive. Jesus in the flesh, not dead, but alive. At this point, I find this decision of Jesus a little curious, if you ask me. He showed them his hands and his side. Remember that in John's gospel, the disciples are not at the cross watching what happened to Jesus. They have no idea what is happening to him on the cross because they weren't present for any of it. Only one disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, was there, along with like four women, most of whom were named Mary. The disciples never saw the nails go in. They never witnessed the spear thrust. That Jesus shows them these things as proof of their identity is interesting because when they last left him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not bear such marks. But somehow, they knew what happened. Like, knowing somebody is having emergency triple bypass surgery, you don't need to be present the entire time in the operating room to understand what is happening. You may have seen them when they were feeling okay and their body was unscarred, but when they emerge from surgery the next day, and later when you get to visit them and you see the bandages covering the stitches, well, you know it's them. It's the same person who went under, who had their heart repaired, and who now has to clutch a pillow when they cough. It's them. You know it. 
The disciples knew Jesus was going to be crucified. They didn't need to be at the cross to see it happen, to imagine what that was going to do to his body. But that said, I would not be surprised if Jesus showing them his wounds brought to these disciples a healthy heap of guilt and shame at their choice to abandon him in his time of need. Like, look at what my body endured, the Lamb of God slain for human sin says wordlessly by showing his scars. But if there was any guilt or shame in that room, it did not linger long enough for John the Gospel writer to note it. Instead, the disciples were filled with joy. They rejoiced when they found the Lord was present with them, not dead, but alive. Then Jesus says something unusual. Like the first leg of a relay race, Jesus extends the baton to his disciples and says, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. What does that mean? Then Jesus does something unusual. Like God in the Garden of Eden with a pile of clay, Jesus looks upon this fearful, ragged group of disciples and he breathes on them. Clearly Jesus hasn't read the latest COVID guidelines. We don't breathe on people anymore. Jesus breathes upon them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Somehow the breath of the risen Christ transmits the very presence of God. You can call it spirit or glory, call it the love of God that unites Father and Son, but this spirit, this presence, this glory, this love is now bestowed upon the, G the disciples by Jesus. What does that mean? And then Jesus says something even more strange. He says... If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Wait, like for real? Like the church gets to decide what is holy and what is profane? Like the followers of Jesus get to determine what is going to be in or out before God? And if we forgive something, it actually legitimately is forgiven, and if we don't forgive, then that person isn't really forgiven? Is Jesus nuts? Doesn't he realize that this is going to lead to all sorts of shenanigans and power-broking and coalitions striving for power and riches on the backs of the poor? Doesn't he know that his disciples, whom he is entrusting with this power, will be perennially in every generation too frightened to speak up against the powers of evil and who will, in fact, forgive what is actually evil and refuse to pardon what is actually right? What is Jesus saying? And we've got ourselves a three-point predicament here, and I'll tell you one thing. A three-point predicament calls for a three-point sermon, so... You're welcome. First, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. As Jesus' followers, we are called to imitate Christ in this world, both by what we say and how we say it. How was Jesus sent to the world? He was sent incarnationally. That is, he was sent to humanity as human, not as a vision of God, not as an alien, not as something foreign to the human experience, so too we are sent 
to this world as part of this world. We cannot stay in locked rooms of safety forever. We are sent to the world. As part of his incarnation, Jesus dwelled as God in a body, a body that hungered and sweated and which needed sleep and which could be beaten and pierced by nails and hung from a cross, a body that could be stabbed by a spear and buried in a grave. So too, we who embody the risen Christ are sent out into this world in bodies that also suffer and hunger and sweat and hurt, and yet which are still empowered to transmit to others a radical sign of the love of God. On this point, I find Jesus' actions earlier in the story telling. Jesus shows the disciples his hands inside. He reveals his wounds, his sufferings. The church that is sent as Jesus was sent must also be willing to reveal its scars and wounds. It must not hide behind riches and successes and false joy. The church which embodies the risen Christ must be a people who are unafraid to let down their guard and say, yes, let me tell you my story of pain and hurt and sorrow and grief. Yes, let me tell you of my addictions. Yes, let me tell you about my anger and my failures. Yes, let me show you my scars, my wounds. It's, it's me. It's somebody you know. Someone you can relate to. The church is sent to the world just as Jesus was sent, to be fully present in the suffering and pain of being human and not to be afraid to show our scars and speak of our suffering. Second point. The Holy Spirit is the only means by which we can accomplish anything Jesus tells us to. Jesus sends the disciples out to the world as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, but then he does not send them out empty-handed. Instead, John says, he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Like Aslan, the great lion, who breathes on the captives of the white witch, restoring them fully, though they had been turned to stone, as C.S. Lewis says in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so too the risen Christ breathes upon us and causes all of our stony cynicism to break apart and fall away, causes us to come alive, to believe. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Spirit. The reading today from 1 Corinthians says, Jesus calls us to follow him into this world and gives us the Spirit to do it. If we think that we can embody the way of Christ without the Spirit's aid, we are fools. If we think that Jesus was just a good teacher with good lessons for children to learn, we're missing the point. If we come to worship and we think that the point of it all is just the coming and the going, we aren't paying attention. We are here to worship, to be renewed and filled and connected to the Spirit of God, that we might know what is right and do it, that we might remember the words of Jesus and live by them so that we might be forgiven of our sins and reminded of our true purpose as Jesus' disciples to offer that forgiveness to the world. But the central actor in all of this is not us. It is God's Holy Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, we might as well stay in the locked room for fear of all that awaits us. It is only the Spirit that gives us 
permission to believe and to trust and to hope and to love and to persevere and to imagine and to follow. We are a spirit-filled people in a spirit-filled church on a spirit-filled mission. That's number two. The third point, the invitation to us to forgive sins. That is, to declare some things holy. And the invitation to retain sins, that is, to declare other things profane, is a sober task that is profoundly difficult to accomplish. And since we are called to imitate Jesus, Jesus said, I'm sending you as I was sent, we ought to begin interpreting this by what we see in Christ. What I mean by that is this. If Jesus really is giving the church the power to forgive some sins and to not forgive others, and if we're going to do this by acting like Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we need to ask the question, whose sins did Jesus forgive? And whose sins did he retain? And on that point, we find ourselves thrown into the deep waters of God's grace and mercy where there ends up being little room for judgment and condemnation. For Christ, the Lamb of God, said, I did not come into this world to condemn it, but to rescue it. No one was deemed to be outside of God's mercy. No one was deemed to be excluded from God's grace. Not the Pharisees, not the tax collectors, not the foreigners, not even the mortal enemies of Israel, not the Roman governor, not those caught in adultery, not the man left to languish 38 years by a mineral spring by his peers, not a man dead for four days and buried in a grave, not a starving group of disciples who wanted to hear Jesus, not a man who betrayed trade Jesus for money, not Peter who denied Jesus to everybody, not the other disciples who abandoned their Lord in his time of need, not Mary who could not believe Jesus was alive at first. No one was deemed unworthy. You are hard-pressed in the Gospel of John to find one occasion where Jesus retained the sins of anybody. And Lord, help me, there were plenty of people whose sins I would have retained. If our Lord offers mercy and forgiveness, then I dare say we who go forth bearing his name ought to do the same. Now, it is true that the Gospel of John ends not here. It ends on a beach with Jesus confronting Peter for his sin against Christ. But it ends not in hopelessness and not forgiveness. It ends in reconciliation. It ends in a new opportunity for Peter to step into this pathway Christ has called him into. So there you have it, church. Pentecost according to John. A word to a fearful people huddled in a safe space to avoid the hard work of facing the world out there. Yet even there, the risen Christ appears and recommissions us to go as he came, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to find ourselves offering forgiveness and mercy in a world that has forgotten such things even exist. That is the way of Pentecost, the way of Christ, the way of the Spirit. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen.
Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.